Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. We usually begin with Mr Kevin Healy and his week that was, but Kevin's having a holiday today, but he'll be back next week and the week after, and that will be the final Tuesday Home Time for 2022. But today we hear from US peace activist Kathy Kelly, formerly with Voices in the Wilderness, which worked to break the US blockade on Iraq, then on to Voices for Creative Nonviolence, working both with the people in Iraq and Afghanistan, then on to the home front, Wonthaggy, 132Ks southeast of Melbourne, the home of Jessica Harrison, long-time activist in many areas. Then on to Alison Bronowski, AM, former diplomat, author and academic, and president of Australians for War Powers Reform, focusing on a number of issues, including Julian Assange. And finally, Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, the actions of Egypt in persecuting the people of Gaza. So I can hope you can stay listening to Tuesday Home Time right through to 6 o'clock when we'll be hearing from Dunbar Law. And don't forget, if you don't hear it all today, you can get onto the website, 3cr.org.au. You can hear it streaming for a week, or you can do the podcast. Find out all about that on 3cr.org.au. I'm speaking now for the last time this year with US peace activist Kathy Kelly. And Kathy, in a world where war and unrest is all too common, here in Australia, and I'm pretty sure it's the same in the US, the overwhelming focus has been on Ukraine, the anti-Russian propaganda, the one-sided reporting of war, the media saturation day after day, and almost total negation of conflicts outside of that in Europe. Well, I think there is certainly a push for U.S. people to approve of the war and of continued stockpiling of weapons in Ukraine and therefore replenishing supplies of weapons in the United States. But there's also very bold and brash discussion on the part of people in high places in the Pentagon Uh, and in the government about how this is sort of a rehearsal, a proxy war rehearsal for what's coming, which would be war with China, which I'm sure should send shivers down the spines of many people in Australia. The readiness of these war makers to continue to lie to the U.S. people and people all around Europe and the rest of the world and saying that Weapons are your only way to assure security is is just stunning to me. And and that in the context of global climate catastrophe hurtling toward all of us, and yet the war makers say, no, 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 don't spend money on collaborating with scientists in other countries. Don't spend money on developing ways to offset our terrible contamination of the world. Give us more money so that we can stockpile more weapons and we'll use them. And just the power of the arms manufacturers. 
Well, it is um, a corporate takeover, I think, uh, that we have to look at now. Here in the United States, we have put so much money into the pockets of Boeing and Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and north of Grumman that they can afford to hire legions of lobbyists and the lobbyists go into the offices of the congressional and the Senate representatives and they just keep on pushing to make sure that these representatives will continue to buy more of their products and it's a vicious circle. Um, You know, our Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin previously was on the board of Raytheon and so this goes on, this kind of corporate uh, ownership of elected representatives who become like lackeys almost. And uh, th- they want to do this elsewhere in the world. And, of course, you know, places like Saudi Arabia have no problem uh, cozying up to Raytheon, for instance. And uh, Israel is, is very pleased to buy Boeing's and Raytheon's weapons. But it is taking away from what should be foremost in people's minds, how do we pay reparations for the suffering we've already caused by our futile and hideous forever wars? And how do we truly find security in the face of global climate catastrophe? I could imagine, Kathy, that there's a fair bit of support in the U.S. for those arms manufacturers because so many people would be employed in the factories and the think tanks and whatever who are controlled by these arms manufacturers? Well, it is certainly a problem that these arms manufacturers have uh, to their interests, I suppose, wisely, although it seems very sly and uh, sinister to me. They, along with the Pentagon, have managed to put either a base or a manufacturing plant in every, almost every single congressional district all across the United States. So even Bernie Sanders, whom I have long lauded as one of the people with a conscientious voice in the United States, he's afraid to um, disobey the dictates of the Pentagon in terms of the production of F-35 planes in his state of Vermont. And even Barbara Lee. Uh, another person whose voice we really look to to oppose war, she went right ahead along with every single progressive in the United States uh, Congress with approving the military budget, which is just obscene. In fact, now they want to give $30 million more to this budget. Let's focus on China for a moment. And as you said, they're they're preparing us for the inevitability of war with China. And I can imagine that that, if if that does happen, that will be a catastrophe worldwide. Well, unquestionably, and that the United States, again, thinking about global climate catastrophe, we should be collaborating with Chinese scientists, thinking about pandemics. We should be collaborating Uh, With regard to the possibility of nuclear warfare, the Pentagon just unveiled uh, a drone that's capable of carrying a tactical nuclear weapon, and they say this is what we need in order to be in competition with China. Well, we should be finding ways to get every country all around the world to sign the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. But the wrongheadedness of the militarists, uh, I think, 
it's like a feeding frenzy. They they all encourage one another to keep on building the fear factor. And of course, now they're saying that it's artificial intelligence and cyber warfare. And if we're going to be secure, we've got to develop all of these new systems in order to in order to be competitive with China. Well, truthfully, I don't think the United States stands a chance of being competitive with China right now. China's economy will continue to grow. They they have five times as many chances to have geniuses in their country as we do, just given the population contrast. And and China has shown that it's not going to build 740 military bases all around the world that will drain its resources. They've got one foreign military base in Djibouti on the Horn of Africa across from Yemen. Uh, but this isn't to say that Chinese militarism isn't on the rise, but if the United States wasn't constantly poking and pressing for military competition with China and with Russia, I think the future could be much, much safer for everyone on the planet. It's just mind-boggling, isn't it, the fact that there are 740 U.S. military bases all around the world? Well, you know... I was so impressed by the work of several people in World Beyond War who um, I really encourage people to go to worldbeyondwar.org and look at the mapping of these military bases because they've managed to you know, create a map where you can hone in and see the big bases and then the forward operating bases and, and then learn more about the towns and the cities where these are located. And, you know, once these bases get established, it, it changes the economy and the power structures of many of the people in the surrounding area. We saw this in Afghanistan. The bases were filled with people from the U.S. who didn't speak the language, who had all kinds of needs for drivers and procurement of goods. And so gangs, gang leaders would cozy up to the military people and say, oh, yeah, we'll provide that for you. Give us the money and we'll hire the people you need to build that airstrip or to build that road or to give you safe passage along that road. And those monies went into the coffers of the very people who were attacking the bases. And also it causes corruption, and that always weakens civil society. But U.S. people aren't ever given information about that. I'm sure there's plenty of corruption in Ukraine going on right now, but what we're going to see is how bad the Russians are. Look what the Russians have done. And it's not a pretty picture, and I don't support it at all. But I think we have to recognize that uh, in wars, every side is going to commit abuses and human rights abuses as well. But, you know, the, the U.S. media is very, very one-sided in what it will allow U.S. people to see. Can we talk about the areas of the world that you and your friends have been working with fellow peace Mm. activists for many, many years now? Can you go through those peoples and how they've fared in 2022? Well, certainly for people in Gaza, life has not gotten one bit easier. They still live in the world's largest open-air prison. They're vulnerable to Israeli air assaults and throughout the West Bank there's been steady imprisonment of activists uh, 
So I feel very, very badly that the United States continues to give so much support to Israel, which quite likely has 200 to 400 thermonuclear weapons. And meanwhile, um, you know, in 2018, President Trump walked away from the nuclear deal, the so-called nuclear deal with Iran. And it looks as though the situation for every country in that region to want to up its capacity for weapons, including nuclear weapons, is is just creating greater insecurity for the world. So I believe it's important to keep pressing to try to revive that nuclear deal with Iran to say that the Saudis cannot pretend to be getting nuclear technology for peaceful purposes when, in fact, it may be helping them to gain a nuclear weapon. And I believe we 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 must encourage all countries in the world to sign the treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons. But then when you move um, closer to Afghanistan, which, you know, did nothing to exacerbate the climate catastrophe. They were one of the poorest countries in the world. They did nothing to harm the security of U.S. people. The United States bludgeoned that country with um, so many attacks and so many night raids and so many abuses of human rights that it made it more plausible for the Taliban to say, look, we we don't bring you all that corruption. We don't bring you all of this bombardment. And the Taliban eventually was able to take over Afghanistan so that in 2022, we've now seen the Afghans plunged into economic collapse since the United States has frozen their assets. Uh, The Taliban, I believe, is veering toward tighter and tighter control and more ominous imposition of punishments if people don't follow Taliban strictures about keeping women in the house and uh, men following very, very conservative rules. And, you know, the United States should be paying reparations and should be finding ways to help the Afghan economy come back to life. But um, because of the Taliban rule, the United States has frozen Afghan assets in the central bank and has prevented humanitarian aid from that's desperately needed from going to Afghanistan. So, of course, people want to flee. And I've been particularly in touch with young people who welcomed us as Westerners to come to where they lived and where they worked in a, a very altruistic volunteer setting. And that now has jeopardized them, and they've needed to flee. Sometimes the most nonviolent thing you can do is flee. So we're trying to help 19 of them go from Pakistan. And, you know, Pakistan is a place that's been uh, enduring severe weather circumstances, tsunamis and droughts and uh, floods, and they don't want more refugees. They've made it very, very difficult for Afghans living there. And so we are trying to help this group of 19 go to Portugal, where uh, eight people previously went. And Portugal has been um, quite welcoming and creative and humane in uh, bringing the youngsters into communities in Portugal. So there's a focus on Afghanistan, certainly, but also with regard to Yemen. You know, we, we can't walk away from or look away from the consequences of not only Saudi Arabia's bombings of Yemen, but you know the United States has, whenever it decided it was in its interest, bombed Yemeni civilians. And 
one campaign I've been very much involved in has tried to just get money for operations and physical therapy for a man, Adela Mantari, who was working for the Yemeni government when he and his four cousins were hit by a United States drone attack, and he was the only survivor, and uh, he's still now in a uh, physical therapy unit in Cairo trying to recover from his wounds. So I think sometimes we have to focus on individual stories and go to the Pentagon and go to the State Department and say there ought to be compensation for these individuals whose lives are forever altered by our forever wars. And the other reality that we're feeling extremely conscious of is uh, the buildup within the United States for ongoing war in Ukraine and the danger that the nuclear weapon plant in a place called Zaporizhia could be hit by a weapon or in the zone around the plant, which ought to be demilitarized. There could be an attack which would make it impossible to convey the electricity needed for the cooling plants. It, it, it could become another Chernobyl, another Fukushima. So we're trying to develop an unarmed civilian protection team that might be able to join the International Atomic Energy Association to try to enable a demilitarization zone around that plant. You know, these are things that are all undertaken with civilian initiatives and individual people's funds, often the funds of pensioners who don't really have a lot. And meanwhile, there's been no help for refugees that I've known or for unarmed civilian protection efforts coming forth from from any governments. I'm speaking with anti-war activist Kathy Kelly. And just a reminder of the work that Kathy has been doing for over many, many years. She began right back in the first war against Iraq with Voices in the Wilderness and then moved on to Voices for Creative Nonviolence. And at the moment, Kathy is president of World Beyond War. Well, grassroots support for countries takes you back to Iraq and Surely if there's one country that needs reparations and compensations is Iraq. And you think what Iraq was before the mm. bombing, the invasion, and the poisoning. And the economic war, yeah. The, the poisoning with and the poisoning, yeah. of Iraq. Well, you know, this is anecdotal, but I was in touch with an Iraqi friend, and he said that after people in Iraq or people in diaspora from Iraq saw that there was so much media concern in the United States for Ukraine citizens who would be going without electricity during the harsh winter. There were, you know, people's um, inboxes were flooded with emails from Iraqis to one another saying, well, what about us? We've been without electricity since the United States invaded and bombed us back in 1991. The United States hit every single electrical facility all across Iraq. And I remember I was there in Iraq during that war, and I remember, you know, surgeons trying to do surgery by flashlight and um, how awful it was to try to get generators imported when the United States had already imposed these very, very strict economic sanctions. There, there's been no let up, no mercy 
no recognition of what was done to Iraq's infrastructure, of the millions of people displaced internally and externally, of family breakup, of bereavement, loss, children orphaned, no recognition. Just the United States walks away from its wars as it's walking away from the war in Afghanistan and gets people ready for the next war. It's hideous and it's despicable and we can't go on this way. We just cannot go on in this way. There has to be a U-turn. And and that's why I so admire these young Afghan refugees. You know, Salman Rushdie, Jan, once wrote that people displaced by war are the shining shards that reflect the truth. People displaced by wars are the shining shards that reflect the truth. And these young ones whom I know, they didn't want to leave their country, but they're starting all over again in a brand new place, learning a new language, trying to employ permaculture skills to help regenerate desertified land. And I see the pictures of you know where they've resettled and land that looked like it couldn't possibly grow crops is now lush. They're showing an example of what we all need to do. We, we've got to find a way to turn away, especially those of us who are comfortable, to turn away from the presumption that if we keep on going in the way that we're going, the planet can survive. It's a degenerate presumption, and it's just not true. I was listening to a Palestinian activist a couple of days ago who said, you have to have hope and love or there's no point in pursuing your goals. We're thinking now of Julian Assange and the possibility, just a possibility, that his ordeal might be over. Well, I was so impressed that the Australian uh, MPs seem to be in line with your government's decision that the United States ought not extradite Julian Assange. And it seems to me that uh, the fact that major newspapers said to the Biden administration, uh, you shouldn't continue to persecute Julian Assange. He didn't do anything much different than what we did. That included the New York Times and other major media outlets. Perhaps there would be an end to his suffering. I think Julian Assange and uh, Edward Snowden and Leonard Peltier and most certainly Daniel Hale, the drone whistleblower who's uh, doing a four-year prison sentence in a very difficult penitentiary. All of them should be thanked, and they shouldn't be persecuted any longer, and we should say we're sorry. We're so very sorry we couldn't end your ordeal sooner. How is Daniel Hale getting on? Well, he says that he finds it very difficult that he can't work for peace, that he can't be involved in trying to affect the situations that he believes are so wrongful. Um, He appreciates the uh, correspondence that has come his way. But, of course, he's only just about a year and a half now into a four-year sentence. And I hope he's found a way to adjust to the everyday routines and some of the humiliations and disappointments. But um, I also hope he can somehow know how much respect he has in the eyes of many, many people around the world. And and meanwhile, you know, the the warfare in Ukraine is beginning to show us just what the consequences of massive drone 
warfare could begin to look like. And, and there's no borders for these drones, really. Just remind the listeners, Kathy, what his so-called crime was. Well, what he said to the sentencing judge was, uh, Judge, you are right. I stole paper um, because I could no longer steal what did not belong to me, the lives of innocent people. He was an analyst, and he had access to the government, U.S. government reports, which clarified that over one particular five-month period when 200 people were killed in Afghanistan, 90% of those people were not the intended target. And to him, working with people who would cheer and, you know, the, the floor would erupt when the workers saw they hit another target, he began to think, I can't keep doing this. It's wrong. So he did take that document and he disclosed it uh, to a, a, a reporter, Jeremy Scahill, working for a group called The Intercept. And uh, Jeremy wrote uh, an extensive article based on conversations with Daniel Hale and paperwork that he uh, acquired. And the FBI was at Daniel Hale's door soon after. And so many charges were brought up against him that he would have spent life in prison if he didn't plead guilty to one of them. And so he did that, and they were able to um, try him in a venue where most of the people that would be on the jury were people who worked for military groups or contractors or were in the military. And it was almost certain that he would be convicted, as he was, and then the the judge gave him this four-year sentence. And when you think of what Julian exposed, it gets no publicity now, but U.S. war crimes. Well, I think about the crime in Iraq, for instance. I, I, you know, those journalists were walking around a corner. One of the journalist's sons was actually in the sights of the people who um, Julian Assange showed us. Had uh, just as almost like a sporting event. Uh, giggling almost over what they were going to do when they finally got the target into their crosshairs. And, and Julian Assange exposed many, many of the, the unsavory and corrupt processes that go along with United States wars. And the United States does not want that kind of thing exposed and has decided that they can scapegoat Julian Assange and they can scapegoat Edward Snowden and deter other people from taking this kind of action. Then you get a brave whistleblower like Daniel Hale who says, I'm not going to be deterred. I realize what I'm up against. I'm going to do the right thing. So I, I think we may begin to see people ready to say that they can't continue maintaining a lie. And, and I I greatly hope that release of Julian Assange would be maybe the tip of an iceberg in a sense. Do you know how Chelsea is getting on? You know, I um, I did see that she had written something recently, but I'm sorry, I, I've been a bit overwhelmed by tasks lately, and I, I didn't follow up on that. I hope she's well. Well, the other promising aspect of 2022 and maybe a little bit earlier is what's happening in South America with the elections in South America? Well, I've been very, very pleased to see that uh, in the case of uh, Lula, 
um, ousting Bolsonaro because he won that election in Bolsonaro, apparently not being able to claim that that was a um, a, a false election. I hope that will bode much better for the huge country of Brazil and the many, many people living there. And I think that we've also seen a real challenge to um, U.S. intent to extract fossil fuels and other valuable resources from other countries in Latin America, Central America, as people are beginning to say, you know, we can stand up to this. So I hope there will be more solidarity amongst Latin American countries and they can show us an example that Chileans uh, elected a, a, a young fellow who was quite the student leader of, of um, Chilean resistance to sort of um, complicit governance that that fulfilled the will often of people uh, from foreign countries who wanted to just take Chile's resources and didn't care about how the students were faring or about the possibilities of unions making gains. And, you know, I think we'll um, perhaps begin to see less complacence with United States militarism. When you look at the number of countries that have refused to go along with the United States war uh, in Ukraine, uh, it's impressive to know that there are quite a few countries stepping back and saying, look, this is your war, not ours. And, of course, the election in Colombia. Colombia was always the country in South America that the U.S. could rely on. Well, that, again, is impressive, and I, I surely hope the best for the new president and vice president, the first uh, afro a Colombian person to be elected as a woman yet to be elected into governance and you know there's no guarantee that the U.S. won't continue to meddle um, but even in Venezuela we're starting to see that they may you know be ready to back off of um, insisting that uh, Maduro is to be replaced by uh, Mr. Guaido so, yeah, we, we really should, uh, as your Palestinian friend said, take hope in those instances where we do see people pushing back and saying we won't be dominated by militarists and colonizers who want to steal our resources for cut rate prices and destroy our environment. How do you gauge the feeling of peoples in America at this moment? You know, I think the midterm election, you know, gave people a, a, a brief sigh of relief. And, you know, we look at former President Trump saying, well, let's rescind the Constitution and, you know, stoking the uh, indignation of people who say that the election here was stolen, that uh, there's uh, every right to carry weapons uh, in, in spite of the terrible, terrible massacres that we see so, so regularly, including the massacre of children in their classroom in Uvalde. Um, I, I think, however, we we are a very polarized society here in the United States, and people perhaps aren't so much getting their news, you know, either from mainstream news or uh, some of the slightly alternative major outlets, but many are getting their news from the Internet. And uh, there's a great deal of uh, misinformation that goes into uh, groups of people who are perhaps kind of insular. You know, they talk to each other. And so it it, it, it makes 
It makes for anxiety uh, because I don't think we have a lot of time to press for better education of um, undereducated leaders or, um, you know, it seems to me that these are very, very crucial times to come to grips with the global climate catastrophe and with the damages that um, major corporations are enabling because of their dedication to unbridled militarism. And so I think we have to work hard. I'm part of a group called the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal. We want to put these corporations on trial, hold them accountable in a people's tribunal in the the people who will be the judges will be the people who've been victims in war after war after war, along with um, military analysts. And I, I'm I'm so proud of the, the group I'm president of called World Beyond War because um, it constantly they say we're not going to cherry pick which war we're against. We want to abolish all wars. And I hope it's okay if I say that on December 14th, it'll be December 15th in Melbourne at 12:30 p.m. your time. There will be a, an event uh, welcoming Claire Daly from Ireland. She's just a fierce and vigorous spokesperson for human rights and against war. And Dennis Kucinich, who is a person who always made a great deal of sense in taking on a lot of the big corporations, especially the military corporations. So both the, the featured speakers, and it is a fundraiser, but I, I strongly encourage people to think about coming to that if you can. And um, I'll, I'll also be part of the uh, spokespeople group. Well, just last comment, Kathy. Are people putting the climate change events together and is it making people think a bit? Because there's so many, there's so many things going wrong now. And are, mm. people, are people changing their habits at all, do you find? Well, you know, I've been looking at the writing of Amitav Ghosh, an Indian novelist who has also written some very fierce condemnations about the culpability of a lot of the academics, a lot of the writers, uh, a lot of the readers of uh, these things. I, I, I think that people like Amitav Ghosh calling that what we are doing right now degenerative and asking people to consider what next generations might think looking back on our time when we didn't do enough. I think we may find that even within academia and within the upper echelons of church hierarchies and other faith-based hierarchies, that even maybe within city councils, uh, we we may begin to see some turnaround because people are starting, I mean, they're staring at, you know, the effects of climate change happening right in their areas uh, with wildfires, with uh, floods, droughts, uh, many, many patterns of extreme, extreme uh, weather conditions that hit the most vulnerable countries, the poorest countries, the worst, really. And they're the countries who've done the least to create the carbon emissions and the climate catastrophes. I, I think we may see some growing recognition, but I am concerned myself that um, with so much reliance on social media, I am not sure that if through the means of TikTok and Instagram and some of the uh, education that just can only be accommodated in sound bites that that an adequate 
sense of the alarm we face can be communicated. I am really hoping that the influencers who are perhaps amongst the stodgier group of people running universities and faith-based groups and city administrations and maybe even some corporations that we might see some of this desperately needed turnaround. And I also hope scientists can keep on speaking out. Um, and of course, you know, Greta Thunberg has shown us what just one young person can do. Well, as Yara said, hope and love. Mm. Well, it certainly is true that even though I, I rage against many of the uh, corporate CEOs and militarists who are in extremely powerful, dangerously powerful places, we we ought never to give up on the idea of loving our enemy and and seeking the dignity and to learn how to live together without killing one another. Thank you, Kathy, and I'll speak to you again next year. <laughs> Thank you, Jen. Thank you very much. Kathy Kelly, tireless worker for peace, and at the present moment is the president of World Beyond War. Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? We'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. VCR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. A number of years ago, activist Jessica Harrison packed her bags and moved to Wonthaggy on Victoria's southeast, 132Ks from Melbourne. And I would contend that Wonthaggy has never been the same since. Jessica, before we look at what you've been involved in over those many years you've been in Wonthaggy, was this prior to or after? the announcement of the decision by the ALP government in Victoria to build the largest desalinisation plant in Australia. I was already here, yes. 14 years since they announced it. So a big thing for us um, because it was, it, it was one of the biggest infrastructure projects 
in Victoria at the time, and it was financed by private borrowing, but backed by the state of Victoria's finances. So it was a public-private partnership where water production was owned and managed by a multinational corporation, which is actually based in France, originated in France. And so we opposed it right from the start because it was the case of privatising water. We didn't oppose the idea of desalination on a small scale and publicly owned. Of course, public ownership of assets now is becoming um, a flavour of the month. But I doubt whether that will affect the um, Aquasaur company, which is still running the desal plant. And it wasn't just the people of Wonthaggy, was it? It drew people from all around Victoria. Yes. In common with, you know, other public-private partnerships, such as, you know, Southern Cross Station, there was a lot of secrecy. And um, we found that our private information as as sort of consistent protesters was being shared with the company. And really, another aspect was the fact that it was going to be pumping out pollution and that pollution wasn't just going into the sea. It was also being transported as solid waste to the toxic waste dump at Lyndhurst. So really, it it has a whole lot of aspects to it. But, you know, one of the important things was that that um, it, there were cheaper ways to actually produce um, or to have a supply of emergency water, which, of course, at the moment we don't need. What was the waste? What was that coming from? Or what does it okay, come the from? Waste is, well, people think of it as just salt, but it isn't because when you shove, basically, an ocean ecosystem through masses of sieves, it means that it get, the sieves get clogged up. That's the process of reverse osmosis. Those sieves have to be washed through on a regular basis basis with the caustic solutions and so that forms the solid waste and a lot of those solutions are also just pumped out in the waste um, into yeah the marine environment off the coast here. And how far out of the coast was it pumped? Pipeline was around one and a half kilometres. When they first um, started pumping they were immediately um, fined a small amount by the EPA because the EPA detected that there was a die-off of um, seaweed and so on around the outlet pipe. And, of course, I doubt whether it's being monitored now. What about the on-land waste that went to, the, went to the landfill? What was that? Well, that is, again, the sort of scraping for sol- solid material that comes out of an ecosystem when you've extracted the water. So a whole lot of seaweed, microorganisms and so on. Yeah, so that stuff is compacted up and... We calculated, yeah, four to six lorry loads a day at, um, at a capacity that was producing water. But at the moment, we've, um, last, they usually announce around the first of April every year whether they're going to be ordering water. And they did say that this year they wouldn't be. But that doesn't mean they're not going to be operating the plant to an, on a small scale just to keep everything sort of working. Was a proper EIS carried out before this project? Oh, yes. Uh, there was an EES, but at the same time as doing the EES, they were preparing to build a pilot plant. So as far as we were concerned, the whole thing was very rushed. We presented at the EES and um, we had expert witnesses and so on, marine, um, marine experts. But, um, yeah, it wasn't successful. It was just pretty much a pushover. And 
what does it cost now to keep that plant going? Oh, I don't really know the figures on that um, because I don't know quite what ca- capacity it'd be running. The main ongoing cost to the state of Victoria is the fact that he, that millions was was borrowed, and so there's a large amount being paid on the interest of all that borrowing, which was of course under a Labor government. Another, and we've got a Labor government now, so they're not going to like they're not likely to look into that or particularly make that information public. And what's been the impact on the environment itself of having that huge plant near the ocean? Well, again, it's not really documented and it's pretty hard for us to to find that out, apart from knowing that they were fined by the EPA. On one occasion, we can't go out there and drop, drop divers off in the water, you know, to see actually what the impact is. But, but yeah, it's, it's not a good look. Well, since then, and even before that, Jessica, you were involved with the community. So let's go through some of those issues that you're working with. And the community house, the community gardens. Yeah, Yeah, well, um, I'm at the community garden now. We've just finished a housing meeting. So we've been talking about the sort of politics of housing and, you know, the fact that uh, the government, the Keating government board in negative gearing and that led to a lot of people just investing their money in housing, which it's up to them then whether they rent it or just keep it vacant. But it's, it's not housing as a human right, it's housing as an investment opportunity. So we, of course, in Gippsland, the same as large amounts of Melbourne, I'm sure, are experiencing, you know, the whole um, rental unaffordability. And we're talking about all the holiday houses that are empty. We're trying to encourage people who've got their rooms to, to sort of, you know, invite, rent them out, have borders and so on. We're talking about, um, tiny homes as people often are. And there is a small amount of public housing being built next year. Hopefully that'll, that'll start as part of the big housing bill. But the situation's pretty dire and it's sort of very hidden and so we know that people who are homeless around our area end up just camping in the bush and uh, just making do camping under any kind of shelter. At one stage underneath the art shed, there were, people were sleeping under there and there's about a foot of headroom under there, so not very comfortable. And are these people from Wenthagen themselves or they, they've come there from other Mixed. places? Yes. So one guy I talked to, because at the community house we have a free food box, so that's accessible by anyone who needs free food 24 hours a day. And people, when I originally set it up, I was hoping people would donate and that would balance out the people who need. You know, it, the sign is just take, donate, but we do have to top it up quite a lot. When I talked to one guy, he his son, he was homeless, but his son was living with his mum and he was going to a local school so he wanted to stay in the area but he couldn't afford to rent so he was just sort of sleeping in a, an empty property and so he of course didn't want to talk about his situation because it would be embarrassing for his son so I suppose that's just one example you know families break up and uh, and yeah someone wants to stay near near where their community is but there's not they can't afford to. Is there much work in the area? Yeah, there is actually quite a lot of work. Um, more of an issue is the fact that if people get jobs in the area, they can't find a place to live. So, you know, there might there might be the opportunities, but you don't want to spend everything you earn on rent. 
What about retrofitting houses? You've been involved in that? Ah, yes. So that was a fun project. It was nice because it was a finite project for eight months. So that was funded by a grant from the state government and that was to help 30 low-income households get their houses made more energy efficient. So some of it was really easy. It was to do with things like sealing up open vents looking at windows and door seals and talking about putting up heavy curtains. Because of my involvement with the Unemployed Workers Union, when we had a branch here, I know I knew lots of people who were renting and who needed that sort of support. So by the end of it, we had actually gone in and we had volunteers going in to help a guy who was a qualified retrofitter and he donated all his time for nothing. So it was just a really nice project and People said afterwards, oh, my neighbour thought I had the heater on, but I didn't. It was just because my place is better insulated. And I'd imagine there's plenty of other houses that need that work done on them. Yeah, for sure. And, of course, there were some people who were so nervous about their tenancy that they didn't want to have to even put, you know, a bit of draft proofing in because they were worried it might upset the landlord. So that was a bit sad, really. Of course... You know, there are, a few, there are a lot of places. Uh, the state government is offering rebates for people if they want to put in solar heat pumps. And there's a group of us now getting the solar heat pumps put, um, which come from the Earthworker Cooperative over in the Latrobe Valley. So that's a bit exciting. Is there much public or social housing or is it all private rental? Well, there is quite a bit of old public housing. And, of course, we've got our eye on it because we know what's happening in Melbourne where they sell it off if it's close to the centre of town <laughs> and they, then they replace it with something which doesn't you know, mean that there are enough, as many beds as there were. So we've got a bit of public housing and then we've got some community housing which um, when I was working as a cleaner I found to be not too bad at all and people really liked living there. And then there is a little bit more being built as I said, just about just a few blocks of, of small um, probably there'll be accessible units but not nearly enough for the demand and, and has, like everywhere in the country really, public housing is just not really flavour of the month for the government. So it's not really keeping up with the demand. What's the community garden like? Oh, well, it's it's on a little bit of land, which um, was originally we were told by the council that we couldn't have a community garden on. Um, but uh, since prevailed, and so it's been now going for about 17 years. And we've got, I'm looking at a quince tree at the moment. It's got quinces about the size of walnuts, but they're going to be growing. And and uh, we've got tamarillos, which cause, oh, everyone asks them what they are, because no one has seen a tamarillo before. They're sort of in a tree tomato. And in February, we're having an open garden um, weekend where everyone can come and look around each other's gardens so that'll be fun. Another thing in February which I'm a bit excited about is we're having a community meeting because we lobbied the council and they declared a climate emergency before COVID and so now they have an action plan for actually putting it into reality and there's a project officer so we're organising a public meeting for him to talk and also Joey who's one of the School strikers for the climate. He used to march all around the town in the years past, so he's really active locally. And yeah, so and there's also another group, totally renewable Phillip Island. So we're going to be all getting together and just talking about 
local ways that we can, yeah, get it happening. And a group of young anarchists coming up? Oh, yes, actually young and old anarchists. Some are in their 20s and some are in their 70s, so, and some are in between. <laughs> and we're calling ourselves the Circle of Wonsaggy Anarchists, the CWA, so we don't frighten anyone. <laughs> what, what are you going to get up to? Oh, well, mo- mostly we're doing sort of practical skill-sharing stuff. We've been reading some of David Graeber's um, writings to do with the fact that a lot of people actually practicing mutual aid in their daily lives, um, which is sort of one of the basic tenets of anarchism, but they don't really recognize it as such. <laughs> I suppose this community garden is a good example of that, is that no one's paid to work here. We're all just doing it because we like gardening together. But uh, with doing that, and also we're going to be practicing a bit of dumpster diving because there's a few of the younger ones who want to pick up tips. And where does all this fit in with May Day, Jessica? Oh, May Day. Well, May Day is one of the times when we all get together. We have um, red flags and black flags and uh, um, First Nations flags, and then we have just a public forum, and if there's enough of us this year, we might march around the town a bit. And if anyone can get up and speak, one of the campaigns maybe we can get going next year is to survey the local cafes to make sure that all the cafes are, are paying award rate wages because it's very easy for the, the sort of fashion for having a coffee to end up people being paid not very much to serve you that coffee. Are there a lot of young people in one flagging? Yeah, there are actually. Um, there's, of course, there's a high school, there's a couple of other schools, you know, those kids are, are growing up. We know some of them actually, you know, housing issues can come up for them as well. Some of them would be heading off to have adventures now they've finished school and then others have gone off to live somewhere else and then come back because one young person, young guy I know is 20-ish, yeah, he he worked in Sydney. He found he could work from home in Cape Patterson and so he could stay with his family. So that's what he's doing. So, yeah, mixture of reasons. We started off talking about the, the environment down on the coast. What about sand mining? What's the issue there? Ah, yes. Well, this is very relevant at the moment. People did a lot of work in the state election trying to lobby politicians about that. And there's a very strong campaign which is called Save Western Port Woodlands. So along the edge of Western Port, there is this beautiful bush that um, messmate forest hasn't been destroyed in patches it has. But then there are a lot of companies that have bought up sections of it for sand mining. So people have directly asked the current government why they are destroying untouched woodland to dig up the sand when there are other options and other places they could get it, which wouldn't destroy a, a little bit of pristine wilderness. And they um, have not been forthcoming. They said, no, we need the sand. So we've done our own study that shows that you can um, dig similar quality sand in other parts of Victoria, in fact, more accessible to the main highway, but that hasn't had any effect. And I think that there might end up having to be some blockading happening. They've discovered people were out looking for powerful owls in the bush there and they saw a glider. So there's a lot to be discovered. And I love going there and looking for orchids in the spring. So, yeah, it's a lovely little bit of bush and people just don't really take much notice of it when they're driving down to Phillip Island. It's near Grantville, if anyone knows the area. 
So how did the elections go down there? We had quite a few independents and Greens and, yeah, um, I, I kept out of the way of all of it, but people said they had interesting political discussions when they were all handing out at the voting booth. Now, with all this going on in one thaggy, Jessica, you still had time, I'm not quite sure when it was, to go to northern Queensland and give a helping hand? Yeah, that's right. Well, that was rather handy because it was in one of the colder months I went. Um, so I went in August, yeah, and I stayed with the Anarchists Against Poverty North Queensland. So they have a very active mutual aid food program where they give out hampers from their little shop in Townsville and then they also go out and it made my heart feel warm handing out these ready-cooked meals to people who were sleeping out on bits of concrete in the winter in in Queensland of course it's not as cold as down here but of course they were all indigenous people um, who are out camping and so we were just handing out free meals and also other, you know, useful toiletries and that kind of thing. So that group does that once or twice a week as well as give out giving out food and they've just had a really amazing community day with the same idea and they're just talking talk about it as yeah, practicing mutual aid. Well thanks Jessica and, and I'd imagine the years you've been at Wenthaggy you've seen a lot of changes but there's a lot more that needs to be done. Yes, that's right. Well, I'm sitting, I'm sitting right now in the heart of Wonsaggy, I call it, because it's not the supermarkets. <laughs> and it's, I'm surrounded by the Goods Shed, which is an art studio where the local art group meets, the Historical Society, and then just up the road is the Community House. So there's definitely we need more places like this. Okay, good luck with it all. Thanks. Thank you. I've been speaking with Jessica Harrison and people might remember many years ago, Jessica was part of the sewer program here on 3CR. And that's S-U-W-A, International Workers of the World, Unemployed Workers Fighting Back and Doing It Ourselves. Join us for the 2022 edition of The Change, Definitions of Freedom. Interactive theatre, 7 to 9pm on the 16th of December at the Honda Showrooms, Hoddle Street. We're also having an exhibition and preview from 5pm Thursday, 24th of November at The Store, Abbotsford Convent. Find out more on Facebook at The Change Definitions of Freedom. The Change is presented by United Struggle Project, a 3CR supporter. Setting Sun International Film Festival is turning 10 in 2023. Enter your film and help celebrate the occasion. There are loads of great prizes, including $2,500 for best film. For your chance to be in the running and see your film screened at the gorgeous Sun Theatre or at Kindred Studios, both in Yarraville, head to settingsun.com.au. Setting Sun is a 3CR supporter. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese revealed that he had personally lobbied in the US for that government to drop charges 
against the WikiLeaks co-founder Julian Assange. But will his stand make any difference to a seemingly intransigent US administration? I spoke on Friday with Dr. Alison Bronowski, AM, former diplomat, author, academic, and president of Australians for War Powers Reform. Alison, a couple of days before the announcement by Albanese, five leading media outlets released an open letter denouncing the US persecution of Julian Assange. The New York Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, Der Spiegel and El Pace. These are the media outlets that published the leaked military documents 12 years ago. It would appear that Albanese's hand was forced in a way by these media outlets. Yeah, I think you might be right about that. It certainly looks as though it was there, there, was, there were several events that took place before his sudden announcement. One was quite a while back, in mid-October, in fact, Jennifer Robinson was here, you know, Julian Assange's uh, barrister, one of them, and she spoke at the National Press Club. And I know for a fact that while she was here, she met with uh, Albanese, and I would be surprised if the subject of Julian didn't come up. So that was one thing, and you can assume uh, that what she would have said to him and he would have taken that on board, perhaps, in the light of him having said when he was in opposition that enough was enough and that it was time to get him out. And he has, to his credit, I must say, kicked off one of his promises after another since getting into office. And he's been flat out busy, obviously, not only doing international commitments, but also doing all the things that they said they would do. I don't need to list them for your listeners. They know what they are. Um, but one after another, many of them domestic issues, but international as well. And the Julian case is clearly one of them. Now, I do think that as far as the timing goes, one thing they probably wanted to do was to get uh, Sean, Dr. Sean, um, the academic, out of uh, Burma, out of Myanmar. Um, who was locked up there for having advised Aung San Suu Kyi. I mean, these cases take a lot of negotiating. And I think that perhaps when they cleared the decks with that one, it was a good moment for Julian. However, there is clearly a, a moment here where what the uh, five main major newspapers in the United States and in Europe have come out with is a change of position for them because most of them have been fairly anti-Julian for a long time and indeed they were part of the problem once he, uh, he gave them the information and then somebody leaked the, the security key to it and he was held to blame for that. But I do think that their revelation is something that would have pushed uh, the Prime Minister's hand a bit on this. But the other thing is, he, he did need to keep that promise, and he did have the opportunity in Bali 
and also in uh, Phnom Penh to talk to the Americans, even uh, to raise it with Biden. And if he had an opportunity of, say, what, 40 minutes with Biden in Bali, and if I were advising him, I would have put that on his agenda list. Raise this question. Whatever else you talk about, here is an opportunity. Because Biden has been talking up his credentials as a leader of the free world and a, <laughs> and a, a sort of a standard bearer for democracy, for goodness sake. And, and if our Prime Minister didn't take that opportunity, I'd be very surprised. So I think those things are all pushing him in the right direction. He hasn't moved very far, of course. All he's doing is saying that um, we are going to see what we can do about this. And it could take quite a lot of negotiation and talk before anything comes with it. Just wondering about those media organisations. They've had plenty of time to make a statement like this before, but they haven't. No, they haven't. And I can't imagine, I, I mean, I can't imagine, but I can't state with any certainty what their publisher's position is on this, what their political position is, but it certainly is helpful not to have Trump in the White House. That is one thing. And I think the I think the other is that there has been a lot of of global protest going on and on about Julian. And I think that these media outlets don't want to be left looking like hypocrites, looking like People who, when government did something, they don't want to be looking as though they did nothing. So they're getting out, perhaps, ahead of their governments or ahead of the Australian and American, uh, US government, at least, and British too, so that they don't look as if they're decades and more of, uh, quite frankly, blackening Julian Assange's reputation in their media, is the thing that they are going to be held responsible for. This ongoing persecution of Julian takes place while the, the real issue of war crimes is not discussed. Yeah, well, of course it is. And, and what Julian is being punished for is embarrassing the United States by revealing its war crimes. And the, it's very simple. That's what he did, and they were determined to punish him for it. Not so much uh, to, to extract individual penitence from him, but to send a message to anybody else who thought that they could do this, that they'd better not try, or it will happen to them. In other words, they're using him as a cautionary example to anyone who wants to be a whistleblower or anyone who wants to leak uh, classified documents. On the unlikely scenario that the US would drop this charge against Julian or these charges, where does that leave the United Kingdom and Belgium's prison? Well, that's the other thing, of course, because if 
the United States dropped its case, then there would be, as far as I can think, uh, there would be no further reason for Britain to hold him in jail because he was originally held there for breach of bail conditions, can you believe, which normally attracts a six-month sentence max. And he, he's been locked up there now for three years and as well as being in, in diplomatic asylum for seven. So you might think that he has paid whatever penalty he needed to pay for breaching his bail conditions but there is no charge against him in the British courts, none. And there is no nothing of which he has been accused by the United States. All the United States wants is his extradition so that they can charge him in the United States and, and go through their whole long process to deal with that. So if there is no charge against him, I cannot see any reason why the British courts would continue to hold him in London. Well, why then was he banged up, as they say, in such a, a terrible prison if what you've just said is true? Well, because, as I said, it's part of sending a message. The Americans, I imagine, said to the Brits, now, listen, this man is high priority for us. Do not give him a free ride, do not let him out on bail, do not put him somewhere where he might escape, and, and lock him up in conditions that are visibly punitive, and send the message that I was describing before to anybody who thinks that they might do what Julian did, uh, that they'd better not try. And the Brits, under Tory government, you know, thick as thieves with the US alliance, apparently have agreed to do this, and so much for British justice. I, I would have thought that what they should have said was, our legal system is our own, we'll run it our own way, don't tell us how to do it. But in fact, not only do I suspect that that's what the Americans told them and they said, all right, but before, way back down the track, you'll remember that when he was accused on a sex charge in Sweden, the Brits themselves put huge pressure through their uh, prosecutors on the Swedish legal authorities to keep it going. Don't back down on this. This is very important for us. You know, we want you to get this guy for us. What they meant was so that we don't have to, we don't want to have to be seen to be obliging the United States on this. We want you to do it. The Swedes eventually gave up and said they had no further... They had no charge against him. And he offered to give evidence. He offered to appear. Nothing was done. They fell about um, in their own legal system, arguing over what should be done, and then they dropped it. So, I mean, the British lack of, shall we say, judicial independence stares you in the face in this story. Well, it's not only judicial independence either. It's the freedom of for journalists, it's a freedom of speech. Both these governments are denying. Yeah, well, that, and that's what these five newspapers are now arguing, which, of course, is in their own interests to argue. That's what they care about, much more than they care about Julian or his lamentable fate. That's what they care about, is 
being able to publish what they like without their own people getting arrested. Now, I was talking the other night with an old-hand journalist from way back. He's retired now. Uh, and we were talking about this issue, and he said, he's not a journalist. Not a journalist. He doesn't write stuff. He just publishes stuff. I said, well, okay, let's not split hairs. He's a publisher then. Yeah, but, you know, he he ought not to be able to claim that he represents the freedom of the press. <laughs> to which my response is, well, if it was you who was locked up, how would you like it if your government didn't do anything to try and get you out? If you were there for years and years and years on a trumped-up charge, how would you like that? And there are journalists out there who are still running that line. We are journalists. We've got freedom of the press. Publishers haven't. And, and of course, some of them hate their own publishers because they're their bosses. But what Julian does or did, and what WikiLeaks does, is just the same as those major newspapers do. They receive, very often, leaked information, some of which comes from governments themselves, quite often. They do not reveal the source, and Julian never did. He, he refused to uh, compromise Chelsea Manning, and he could have cut himself a deal if he'd done so, but he didn't. And these people, what uh, they don't like, these major newspapers don't like, is somebody who is given a huge amount of information and potentially a, a gigantic breakthrough that they didn't get. And that's what they don't like. And so there was eagerness to use the stuff, but there was also vindictiveness on their part against Julian. And also, too, Alison, surely the fact that journalists working in the mainstream media don't have the freedom to do what they want. No, they don't have. And, and this is another thing that's hypocritical about it, because you and I know that there are, particularly in Australia, there are media outlets where journalists are clearly told what to publish and not to publish. And in fact, this issue itself, this very story, is a demonstration of it because, as far as I can trace, the only media that have carried the story of Albanese's decision or his statement about this are SBS, The Guardian, The Australian, and the, then the online things like The Monthly Online and The um, well, Guardian Online, of course, The Green Weekly, uh, Green Left, as it's now called, and no others that I can make out. Apparently, not the Canberra Times, not the Sydney Morning Herald, not the Age, and not the ABC, amazingly. Not the ABC. Why not? Who's telling these people not to publish this stuff? What about 3CR, Alison? Come on. Hey, <laughs> good on you, 3CR. <laughs> Yeah, and as I said, as I said, there are lots of small outlets um, informing the people, and I hope the people notice that that these other publications, some of them behind firewalls and all that stuff, and vastly overpriced for the amount of content that you get from them, 
um, are simply not fulfilling their job of publishing all the news that's fit to print. Well, as the year draws to a close, I'd like you to talk about a, a couple of developments through the year. And one relates to the campaign for war powers reform. What's been happening? Well, um, your listeners have heard from me about this before, and as they would remember, we've been campaigning for this thing ever since 2012 to change the way Australia goes to war, that is to say, from a prime minister and his immediate inner circle in the executive deciding that the troops will be dispatched to some conflict overseas, change it from that to requiring that the parliament should debate and vote on such a matter. Now, it's taken a very long time for that to get to where it's got. There have been numerous bills put before the parliament about this, by, first by the Democrats and more lately by the Greens. And our organization, Australians for War Powers Reform, has been campaigning for it for a very long time. And we were relying on two promises we got from Labour in opposition, that in the first term of a Labour government, they would hold an inquiry into how Australia goes to war. And to our great delight, um, at the very end of September, they made good that promise and set up an inquiry through the Joint Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade in the Parliament, and that is going to hold public hearings on the 9th of December. And there have been almost record number of public submissions, 110 to the latest count, and they're still coming in. And there was only one other inquiry of this kind that had more. It was only a little more. I've forgotten just what it was now, but it was a, a separate matter. And this one has obviously touched a public nerve. These are submissions put in by individuals or by groups. And so that represents a lot of people altogether. And so there's public concern about that. The subcommittee that is handling it is chaired by Julian Hill, who's a, a ALP member from Victoria. And he says uh, that much is going to depend on how much public concern and interest is shown in this inquiry, what the outcome of it will be. And from our uh, survey of the submissions that have been put in, and you can view them on the parliamentary website, almost all, uh, only a handful, three or four, do not support the notion of uh, reform in this area. And so it will be hard for the subcommittee to ignore that kind of public response. What do you believe over the years has been the consequence of not having that reform? Well, it's very simple. Ever since 1945, we have been to repeated wars as an ally of the United States, and every single one of them has been either inconclusive, as in Korea, or disastrous, as in Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, and I would also count Syria. So if that's the record of 
our actions in this area, and each of those was decided in the manner that I've described by the inner circle, the Prime Minister, and the inner circle of the National Security Committee of Cabinet, and each one a disaster. And so you would think that if, for instance, you were running a business and you kept on doing the same thing and you kept on losing money and making a failure out of every time you did it, you'd think that the shareholders would want some change. You'd think the shareholders would either sack the board or they would say, do things differently. Now, why does Australia not make that change? You'd think that the, the liberals in particular, with their understanding of, of these business principles, would apply the same to the way government is run. The question is, why don't they? Well, then you look, if you're worrying about public consultation, what about AUKUS? Well, indeed. And we advocate, uh, at the very least, public consultation on AUKUS. And what is, what is most disturbing about that is that there is nothing to debate. We have no facts. We have no detail to get into because it's all locked up in this information-seeking process of 18 months that they established when they first announced it. And it was revealed, apparently, to the opposition at 24 hours' notice so that they had no opportunity either to find out what was in there. And we still don't know. And so what is going to happen in March is that they will reveal this decision that will have been made and there is nothing on which the public can decide. It is clearly directed against China and that is a matter that the public ought to understand and know about and discuss and debate and what the pros and cons of us getting into a serious conflict with China are. And many ordinary citizens, I think, would want to know what benefit in the world going to war with China and losing that war disastrously could represent. And that is what AUKUS is intended for, at vast expense to arm ourselves against China in ways that by the time we have this stuff, they will be out of date, outcompeted by China itself, and probably will have caused an arms race in our region as well. So what in the world is the advantage of this? Now we're beginning to hear little dribbles of information, like there are a whole lot of Americans who've been working inside the Australian defence establishment since 2014 and paid for by us, point one. Point two, the Americans now say, well, what they'll actually do is um, to cover the gap before we get the AUKUS nuclear-powered submarines, they'll lease us some of their own. So we then end up not only buying American stuff, but subsidizing the American Navy in the meantime. I mean, the astronomical figures that are involved in this, and then we're told that we can't afford better schools and hospitals and roads and, and all of this. It is absolutely outrageous, and I think that the public need to make their position on this clear, even without the information, because you don't need the details to know that this is a bad deal.
do you think the Labor Party is, have got their head around it? No, I don't think so at all. I, I think that's what, what's happening is that the decision has been made at a very high level. Everybody else is reluctant to cause trouble for the leadership. Uh, and in particular, Labor is terrified of two things. One is of being wedged by the opposition as being soft on China or weak on the US alliance or something like that. And the other is they're terrified of the Murdoch media, which is totally pro-American, totally pro-defense, totally pro-military build-up and arms expenditure and nuclear too. And through many years of painful experience, Labor has learned to be very afraid of the Murdoch media. And the, the irony of this is that that outfit is owned by an American citizen. Talk about an agent of foreign influence. We have laws that people can be locked up for being an agent of foreign influence. And that's exactly what Rupert Murdoch is behaving as. As Richard Tanter said a couple of weeks ago, it's time for a totally reinvigorated anti-war movement. Yeah, I think so too. And Hugh White has said the same thing in different words. What, what Hugh White says, and this I particularly agree with, is that if we don't want a war, as, as Richard Tanter agrees, if the people of Australia don't want a war, then the sooner we tell the United States that, the better. Because what we don't want is to be rushed into something which could be a false flag event, it could be trumped up, <laughs> nice word, in some way. And what Hugh says, and I think he's right, is that we should say to the United States, we are not interested in for forming a coalition with you to fight against China. China is a major trading partner for us. We are in the region. We would be a target before you are. And we don't regard this as being in the interests of our national security, nor in the interests, national interests of Australia either. And putting that across quietly and collegially to the Americans could make all the difference because they always want a coalition. They never go to a war on their own. They always want a backup from other countries because that's how they convince the Congress that it's a good thing to do. When they point at other countries and say, look, we've got all these other democracies who are behind us, so we've got to do this. And that's why they're trying to get NATO interested in this part of the world, which is a real worry. Well, this is the last time I'll speak to you this year, Alison, but I'd like your comments on the demise of Scott Morrison and the damage he's done to Australia since he's been in Parliament. I, I used to think that the Howard years were the worst I'd lived through, but I, I, I lived to be corrected. I think we didn't realise how bad it was when we were living through it until the day of the election. And, and when that dawned, and it was gone. I think that the sense of relief and sort of revived optimism that people had was tangible. Certainly it was around where I live. And 
I'm in a, a teal electric. And the, we only realize quite how bad it was now that a lot of things are coming out about Morrison that we didn't know. And we began to know, people began to realize that he was untrustworthy fairly early on. But that, Australians are slow to anger, you know, but gradually it got out there and it got under people's skin. And you could feel the, the anger building against him because he was so... Uh, one of the great sins in Australian politics is to be, as they say, up yourself. You know, so pleased with himself, so refusing to, still now, refusing to apologize or take the blame for anything, always finding somebody else to blame if things go wrong. And that kind of behavior really annoys Australians. And I think that they paid for that, as well as that, of course, he's, it's clear that he was deeply misogynistic. That was not a good time to, to be that because Australian women are getting very sick of that sort of behavior. And all of those things, plus the, the groveling attitude to Donald Trump in the foreign relations area, the hugely anti-China stance that he suddenly took halfway through, he wasn't before when we were doing great trade with China. Everything was fine. Then he got the word, wait a minute. No, no, we're, we're going to turn on China now. So he turned. And, you know, this sort of stuff was just, it, Australians saw through it. And it didn't matter what the Murdoch media said. I can contradict what I said earlier. They were totally supportive of, of Morrison until the last few days when people started to realize what was going to happen and they were guarding their own reputations. But even that, it showed Murdoch and his friends that Australian people cannot necessarily be conned in that way. And so that, coming back to what I was saying about the Labour government, they don't need to be so scared of Murdoch. They don't need to be so timid at being afraid of being wedged. They, can, they ought I believe, to take a clear position on these matters in the national interest. And for instance, as I suggested earlier, tell the Americans we're not interested in a coalition against China. Thank you so much, Alison. My pleasure, Jan, and best wishes to you and all your audience. Thank you. And I was speaking with Dr. Alison Bronowski, anti-war activist and, of course, much, much more. And we'll hopefully hear from Alison again in 2023. Did you miss 3CR's broadcast of the inaugural historic first Trans Pride March Melbourne on Sunday 13 November? Perhaps you want to break a binary and listen to it again. Well, either way, you can. It's now available for listening at 3cr.org.au Trans Pride March Melbourne. Join in the historic occasion and support our trans and gender diverse communities here in NAM. 3CR Radical Radio, proudly supporting trans and gender diverse people as part of diversity in NAM. 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. 
is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR you hear from Music Sans Frontières. Subscribe to 3CR for music programs dominated by Australian artists, supporting Australian music making and lifting your day with glorious sound. 3CR is a membership-based organisation. We depend on our members' support. That's why we make it so easy to subscribe. Call 9419 8377 or go online to 3cr.org.au. When we think about the imprisonment of Palestinians in the tiny Gaza Strip of what was historic Palestine, we mainly focus on Israeli policies to keep the people impoverished and lacking in most human services to secure a healthy population. But we must not ignore the complicity by Egypt in this dire situation. Human rights activist, poet, author and the inaugural winner of the Jerusalem Peace Prize, Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, is with me to highlight the cruelty of the Egyptian regime by telling the story of just one young family of Australian-Palestinians' visit to their families in Gaza. Stuart, when did the journey of Ali and Noura understandably not their real names, begin, I would imagine it goes right back to 1948 and even before that. In many ways it did. It started in 1948 with that mass exodus of over 700,000 people driven away from their homes. So in a way what happened in, in 1948 is merely the forerunner to what happened to this young family about two months ago, namely in um, July, July, August of 2022. I mean, that's when they made that Cairo to Rafah journey. But as you say, there was a, 
an appalling rehearsal for it in 1948. Can you tell this story? They wanted to see their parents, in particular Ali's parents, uh, that's not his real name, of course, um, whom they had not seen for over eight years, you know, with their two small children who are Australian citizens. They had to make the decision uh, how to get to Gaza without, with the least amount of trouble. Um, they could try and go through Israel, but that was almost forbidden. And so they decided to go from um, Cairo to Rafah, in other words, the Egyptian crossing across the Sinai Desert. They were advised by family in Gaza that an Egyptian agent based in, in Gaza could give them the necessary permission, provided they paid. So they had to pay in advance what was called an allocation fee, which actually looks like, <laughs> looks like bribery, to be able to travel safely across the Sinai. That was the, otherwise they would, um, they might take three days at considerable risk and have to sleep in the open. Just explain, Stuart, what the Sinai Desert is like for a young couple to travel from Cairo to Gaza. Well, it's regarded as very dangerous because the Egyptian military feel under threat from rebel, various rebel groups. I've not travelled that way myself. I've been to Gaza many times, but I've never, I've not gone by that route. It's peppered with um, Egyptian checkpoint, military checkpoints, which are um, uh, unpredictable. And in summertime, which is when they went, it could be about 40 degrees centigrade. I mean, it's, it's, in other words, it's very, very hot. So um, the chances of being exhausted are, uh, are guaranteed. It's, it's not the place for holiday. It, sounds, it's, it would make this, the Nullarbor in Australia look like a Sunday school picnic. And just that first stage of the journey, what did that cost them? That cost them about, uh, well, well over $1,000 US for the husband and wife and the two kids. But that gave them what they called a VIP arrangement. In other words, a car picked them up at 3 a.m. in the morning from their hotel. The deal was that um, the, um, the checkpoints would be told in advance of the couple's arrival. And if they were not, the driver would, um, in Arabic, would um, explain their position and produce, and produce the pages and pages of documents which they were, which they were given as part of the, the $1,000 payment. I've seen a, a photo of the Rafa crossing. Can you describe it? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it looks like a barricade. I mean, it looks like a massive kind of, and behind that, a massive reception hall. But the reception hall, it, it, I haven't been in that one, is split into two. A large room with pe for people, for the hundreds of people who haven't been able to afford VIP treatment and who must wait with no facilities at all, almost no toilets, um, certainly no refreshments, certainly no air conditioning. And then there's more room which Ali and his family entered in which they had paid for a place that has air conditioning, coffee, toilets, etc. But they still waited for seven hours and they were at the entirely at the behest of the um, Egyptian officials. I mean, in some ways, it's analogous to the 
to the R&D crossing controlled by, by Israeli forces. You can wait for hours and hours. You never know what decision is going to be made and why. You dare not ask why we're we being held here for so long. It's a, it's a sort of public humiliation ceremony that goes on every day. But in this case, we're talking about the Rafa crossing. And so they arrived about uh, 10 in the morning, but they, they didn't cross eventually to Gaza, which was only a few hundred meters away until five o'clock in the afternoon. That's part of the humiliation, which is, which is called travel to Gaza. Was there any limitation put on the time that they were allowed to stay in Gaza? Officially, no, but there, um, I mean, this couple arrived in the middle of the, um, the latest Israeli bombing, so the bombing of, um, of Gaza, so that they were subject, they were there when, when bombs were falling, when people, when a whole family quite close to them were completely wiped out. So they spent most of their time trying to calculate when they should leave. And, and what was the safest route to enable them to get out. So instead of a relaxed, happy family reunion, they spent a lot of their time and most of their consciousness was about how do we get out safely? How do we return uh, to Australia with the least amount of trouble? Did the young family relate to others here in Australia how their family are feeling, how they've been able to manage over those years of all the blockades and the, as they say it's an open air prison well good it's a good question i mean they the the people of gaza have been imprisoned humiliated and now they've been they've internally it seems to me that from the comments of my my young friends that people have um, <clears throat> internalized the humiliation they they have almost taken their fatalism for granted, so that um, when the young couple complained about the, the treatment by the Egyptians, their family members said, well, well, what do you expect? That's normal. In other words, we, we take humiliation and cruelty for granted. That's, that's our, our lot in life. Did they receive any help at all from Hamas? Uh, no, I mean... Um, the Palestinian, the authorities representing Palestine, respectively Hamas and Fatah, are notable for their absence. It's quite clear that Hamas has some arrangement with the Egyptian authorities that makes it relatively easy for their officials to be um, given much easier travel and access. In other words, they turn. There's some arrangement, obviously, in which the Egyptian authorities turn a blind eye if the officials represent Hamas, and Fatah is absent, is completely, is completely pointless. I mean, the idea that Fatah is now, uh, or is still an advocate, an ad- is a complete misnomer. Fatah is the Palestinian Authority, which um, spend more energy colluding with the Israelis than protecting their own people. Were they able to travel outside the, maybe the, the family home at all, just to have a, just to get a sense of what it actually is life, life is like in Gaza? No, I don't think so. I think their, their accounts to me are that, of course, this, they, were, they were subject to bombing raids. They were scared stiff. They were frightened for their, for their young children. They were anxious about their young children. 
of course they spent they spent a lot of time as much time as they could indoors with the family members whom they hadn't seen for years and the family members you know gathered round to to see them but um look a measure a measure of what happened to them in Gaza was that they sent at Sydney airport they experienced they almost were on their knees with tears they experienced enormous relief well with their sort of blockaded in their homes because of bombardment what's the access to food and medicines the people of Gaza are um pretty creative and innovative they seem to I think in terms of food, they seem to manage. I'm not sure what sort of food we're talking about. Medicines are, um, I mean, if you're seriously ill, there is no medicine. If people, uh, one of the, the mother of the, of the young, young couple, the, the mother of um, the, the young woman, I mean, she died of a terrible cancer in part because there were no medicines available. She suffered enormously. They, I mean, they advertised on Facebook to get the necessary medicines uh, to relieve her pain, but those medicines came via Facebook contributors 48 hours before she died. The, the cruelty is endless, and major governments, including Australia's, collude with this cruelty. We behave as though it's of no consequence. It's so sad, isn't it, that this young family probably would have planned this trip to see their family for quite a while and for it to end up going there and being under bombardment. Absolutely. I mean, they, they expected it to cost them a fortune. They didn't expect the complete humiliation that... They said the Egyptian, the Egyptian authorities regarded people from Gaza as the lowest, barely, barely worth any consideration at all. And then, as you say, they, their reward in getting to Gaza was to be bombed within inches of their lives by the Israelis. And was the return trip back to Cairo just as traumatic as the, the trip there? It sounded as though that was straightforward. They eventually, of course, they then had to uh, find a, um, a hotel in Cairo and wait for their return flight to, uh, to Australia, uh, which they managed. But, but the, the, the father, the young father, was clearly, I spent time with him recently. I mean, he was clearly traumatised by the whole by the whole thing. His wife had been, had been back to Gaza when their first child was born several years ago. She, so there was a sense, she said, that um, she was prepared for the trauma, uh, but he was not. And he, was, um, he needed to pour his heart out to me to explain what had happened. And he needed that pouring his heart out needed to be uh, repeated. When you hear of situations like this, and no wonder it's going on all the time, that young people just had enough, some young people, and, and they just arc up and say, get out of our country. Sure. Well, like, I mean, the, the Israeli government, I mean, it's now, we know it was racist, we know it's apartheid, but it's unashamedly fascist now. Ben Netanyahu has returned to power, in alliance with the most right-wing government Israel's ever had. The man who wants to be Minister for Home Security or for, for Justice wants all the Palestinians eliminated. <laughs> we in Australia, and of course in America too, support the, the Israelis. 
uh, and we occasionally slap them with a feather, but we seem to be completely indifferent to the slaughter of young Palestinians, which is part of Israeli policy. Now, of course, the caveat to that is there have been uh, some recent stabbings, some recent killings of um, Israeli citizens. But, but we need to understand the, the cause that, in, in terms of your first question, started in 1948. Stuart, Costa Rica, it translates from the Spanish literally meaning rich coast. It borders by the north yeah. to Nicaragua and the Caribbean to the northeast and the Pacific to the southwest. I don't think you could find two countries so different from Costa Rica to what is Israel today. Sure, no. Well, I mean, the, the, the beautiful thing about Costa is trying to tell the world that you can be secure without force of arms. You can be rich without the accumulation of profits. You can find justice through equality, not through uh, beating people into submission. I mean, the, there are questions to be raised, of course, about the implementation, but, the, but those values are such a symbol and a sign for the rest of the world. In a way, they reflect what was written into the Charter of the UN. We should be grateful to Costa Rica that they tried to take it seriously. All the more reason for activists here in Australia and around the world to keep up that pressure on Israel against what they're doing to the Palestinians. Yeah, you know, I agree, I agree totally. There's a, there's a Palestine Solidarity Conference in, in your fair city at the end of January, I think. There are so many things to address. I despair what we, what we can do more about Palestine, um, except to um, support the Palestinian groups in every way. I, I guess one of the most important things is to support the statements about anti-Palestinianism. I mean, there's always a great noise from politicians and governments and even local or local governments about the the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. In other words, nobody should be allowed to criticize Israel because it would be defined as anti-Semitic. That is a it's a terrible nonsense. And at least we ought to consider the language of anti-Palestinianism, which, is, which receives so little attention, but is as serious. Well, the Israelis don't even acknowledge that there are Palestinians. They're called Arabs. Yeah, that's correct. Well, Golda Meir, one of the early prime ministers of Israel, said the Palestinians didn't exist. <laughs> Moshe Dayan said they were, I think he said they were the equivalent of some locusts or something, something like that. That issue, which is about stigmatizing the other, regarding justifying cruelty and abusive power by defining certain groups of people because of their color or because of their race as, as completely inferior. Once you've done that, that seems to, give, to make people think, including governments, that they have an entitlement to eliminate them or to be cruel to them. So that stigma, you can see that in, even in the, even, not even, you can see that in the racism inherent in Australia. The idea, <laughs> anyway, I think that's enough.
perhaps enough pessimism from me for the morning. Well, no, we had Costa Rica. No, that's true. That's that's very optimistic. That's very optimistic. I'm enthusiastic about that. I mean, in a way, Costa Rica is is saying to the people who voted for Brexit, you made a stupid mistake because it was based on racism. They're saying to the to the people who think the American gun culture is wonderful, uh, uh, look, try not to be so destructive every every day in your gun-toting ownership. They're saying to the um, to the to the armaments industry, we can all be secure without you spending a fortune on destroying one another. So yeah, that's the Costa Rican message is is hopeful and optimistic. Well, that's a good note to finish on. All right, Jan. Thank you so much. Talk soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. And Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees is many things. He's a human rights activist, author, poet, and the inaugural winner of the Jerusalem Peace Prize and formerly at the University of Sydney with the Peace and Conflict Studies Department. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.